This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Many companies say, oh, we want to be innovative, but we don't ever want to fail. And it's naive and it's stupid. That's impossible. The bigger the company, the bigger the game the bigger the risks have to be as well. Welcome to the best new ideas in money. I'm Charles Passy, a reporter at MarketWatch. Each week we explore innovations in economics, finance, technology, and policy that rethink the way we live, work, spend, save, and invest. Stephanie Kelton is off this week, and in case you missed our announcement in last week's episode, today I'm taking my final bow as co-host. But... I'm leaving you in good hands. To start today's episode, I want to introduce you to my colleague at MarketWatch, James Rogers. Well, I'm happy to take the reins, Charles. I'm a big fan of the show. All right, James, and I understand you've got an interesting story for us today. I'll let you take it from here. Today, we're doing something a little different. We're taking a field trip. So we're going to start with the sounds of the Brooklyn Queens Expressway out in Brooklyn's industry city. I went there a few weeks back with one of our producers to visit a curious pop-up installation on a subject many of us don't like to talk about. It's called the Museum of Failure. Picture an old warehouse of about 10,000 square feet filled with odds and ends of the past, all different types of artifacts. Now, one of the organisers who helped bring the Museum of Failure to Brooklyn, Johanna Gottman, took us around the exhibits and you'll hear audio of our visit throughout this episode. But before we get to that, a bit of background about how the museum got its start. I started the Museum of Failure about five, six years ago because I got really excited about the research on both the acceptance of failure in organizations and also how basically most organizations are really, 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 really bad at learning from their mistakes because they refuse to talk about them. That's Samuel West. He's the museum's curator and a clinical psychologist with a PhD in organizational psychology. He told me that the inspiration for the museum went all the way back to researching his dissertation. My PhD research was focused on how organizations can create climates that are conductive to creativity and innovation. And part of that is the concept of psychological safety. So you need psychological safety for teams to be innovative and high performing. And one part of psychological safety is being willing to admit and discuss your failures or the failures of the team. And one of the reasons organizations don't do it on a team level or organizational level is because it's complex. It's not straightforward. You can't just easily identify the reasons for failure. You have to dig further into second and third degree sort of explanations. And that's why organizations don't do it. I thought it was just so interesting after being immersed in sort of the business literature and innovation literature, I got sick and tired of success stories because they're everywhere. And I thought that there was more interesting stories to be found with failure, more genuine. And I realized that I can't just go the academic way because people get bored with that. And I had to find a new way of making failure interesting. And also making failure something that's interesting to discuss, you know, outside of even organizational context. 
It's essential. You can't have any innovation or progress in any field without taking risks. You know, that's so true. While there are some big failures that make headlines, companies like Theranos or those recent bank collapses, part of the reason is that we've all built up these notions of their success. I'm curious, were there some industries that were more likely to fail than others? Well, you know, failure can happen anywhere. And the way the museum is organized really speaks to that. It's separated into different sections, which really gives you a sense of the commonalities behind failure. We have failure in motion, which is cars, ships, electric vehicles, and bikes. We even have a motorcycle there, a Honda motorcycle designed for people who don't like motorcycles. There was even a Segway in there. Do you remember the Segway, Charles? Yeah, you know, those upright vehicles that are balanced on two wheels. I, I was always tempted to ride one, but figured I would probably fall off. And it was probably the right choice, Charles. You know, it's hard to believe, but at one point, some people thought that entire cities would build infrastructure around segways, but they never really made it out of malls and vacation tours. While there were a lot of transportation-related missteps in the museum, there's another area that didn't quite get a taste of success. There's another section with food products. There's a lot of innovation going on continually in food and beverage because they're always looking for new flavors and new products, but... Uh, not all of them work out. That part of the museum had things like New Coke, which I know you've talked about on the show before, and Crystal Pepsi, and a whole wall of Oreo flavours. Here's what Johanna Gutman, one of the museum's organisers who took us around, had to say about those. Apparently one of the worst flavours is the barbecue chicken wings. A lot of people said this was the absolute worst. But I was actually speaking to a woman here from a dairy company, and she was saying they put out a probiotic yogurt during COVID and they thought it would be super successful and it wasn't. I asked her, did they, you know, did they figure out what went wrong? And she said, it's not even worth their time. They don't do a post-mortem, they just move on. It doesn't work, pull it off the shelf, let's try the next thing. Because it's, it's not like a pharmaceutical company or even like a tech company where so much money goes into the R&D that it makes a huge difference. They just throw things out at the market and whatever hits, hits. If it sticks, it sticks. Another section they have is called the future is not now. That's for innovations that were a bit too ahead of their time. There's also medical mishaps, which includes healthcare failures. That's where we have the lobotomy tools, Piranus, the infamous Silicon Valley startup that promised advanced blood analysis from micro drops of blood which turned out to be a fraud also. There's a section called, what were they thinking? The common factor is that, you know, this was probably not a good idea even from the get-go. I actually got to try out one of the inventions in that section, the hula chair. Now imagine sitting down in kind of an office chair and then suddenly that chair starts to rotate, vibrate. Now that really is terrible. <laughs> no, this is, this is incredibly bad. Why on earth would anyone think that this is a good idea? After I got out of the hula chair, there were a couple more areas of the museum to check out. Digital disasters is one section of the museum where we have the more sort of tech-driven products and the digital ones that, where we have to display them on a screen rather than as a physical artifact. That's where we have, for example, Google+. There's a section called 
failure to innovate, where companies that had they invested in innovation, then they would still probably still be in business or the products would have survived. We have Blockbuster Video here, which is, I love the fact that they're here because these three items, all right, both the telecom, Minitel, and the facet calculator, these three were all great products for many, many years. They just never pivoted. When the market changed, they didn't change. So I find these three very interesting because the, even when you are a success, it's not forever, right? Blockbuster is one of those where, you know, being a virtual monopoly, they were so huge and they invested in digital streaming services and were actually pretty good at it. But because late fees were responsible for such a big part of their profits, Blockbuster killed the development of the streaming services. And within a couple of years, Blockbuster was killed by Netflix. You know, hearing about all of these old products, and I remember quite a few of them, I wonder how much nostalgia factors into the experience of visiting the Museum of Failure. You're absolutely right, Charles. I asked West about that. I think the impact the artifacts at the Museum of Failure have culturally, I mean, there's, there's different perspectives. One is uh, which the visitors to the museum express is sort of a, a positive nostalgia. So they see these items and they say, oh, I remember I used to have a Sony Betamax or I, we had this or I remember these products. And the memories are fond memories, like, oh, yeah, I didn't, oh, you put this in the in the Museum of Fairy, I didn't know it was a fair. I enjoyed it. Or an embarrassment, people say, I actually bought the Juicero overpriced juicer, and they're ashamed of it, and then they can laugh at it, seeing it at the museum. So nostalgia is one aspect of it. But I think another aspect is that in a world where everything is sort of copywriters, spin doctors, the corporate world covering up their trails of when things go wrong, everything is so super happy and shiny and perfect all the time. And we know this is a false front. To see the failures, it feels authentic and genuine. And people have, they love Crystal Pepsi. And even if New Coke was a horrible thing, people can still remember, oh, I remember that, that was an interesting story. They probably didn't like New Coke, but they enjoyed the story. To have an emotional relationship to a product doesn't always have to be because the product is perfect. Just like humans, you don't love people the most just because they're perfect. You love them because they're human. Coming up, we walk through some of my favourite exhibits at the museum, including one of Apple's most notable failures, plus a key symbol of East German history. That's after the break. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. 
Armor All. Less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome back to the best new ideas in money. Before the break, we went with our new host, James Rogers, inside the Museum of Failure, a pop-up currently running until June 18th in Brooklyn's Industry City. James, did you have any favorite exhibits in the museum? Well, you know, it's interesting you ask that, Charles. I actually posed the same question to Samuel West, the museum's curator. I hate that question. <laughs> we'll put that one in the museum. <laughs> um, I, I love this. My favorites change from day to day. And I like the, I really like the items that have a good story. I have to say, I'm sorry the question was such a failure, but I have to agree with him. One of my favorite stories in the museum came courtesy of its transportation section, which featured something I never thought I'd see, a Trabant. Vier Trümpfe mit dem Trabant 601. Bequem für vier Erwachsene. It was the most common car in East Germany during communist rule. The name is from the German word for satellite or companion, and was inspired by the Soviet Union's launch of Sputnik. Trabants were manufactured from 1957 to 1991, and it was pretty widely acknowledged as a very, very bad car. It's even been called a spark plug with a roof. Just how bad a car was it? Well, let me just list a few of the things that it didn't have even in a model from the 1980s. Nothing to tell the driver the headlights and turn signals are on, no fuel gauge, no rear seat belts, no external fuel door, the list goes on and on. The car ran on a mix of gasoline and oil that had to be poured directly under the hood of the Trabant. But all of that being said, it was also one of the only cars you could get. And so, it was something people really wanted. There was actually a wait list of 10 years to get one. So it was really cool to see one in person. I'll bet. So, what did it look like? Well, for starters, it's really boxy. Picture a little clown car. Joanna Gottman, who was taking us around the museum, said the vehicles were made of duroplast. That was a plastic made from recycled cotton waste from the Soviet Union. Which, in a sense, that may have been sort of ahead of its time. But it, they created, it creates this hard plastic. The car came without seatbelts and without a fuel gauge and also without turn signals. So, maybe they didn't want you to go very far if you were in East Germany, I'm not sure. The Trabant became a cultural symbol after the fall of the Berlin Wall. It was heavily featured as part of the band U2's album, Achtung Baby, with photographs of the band posing with painted cars featuring in the album's artwork. Gutmann says that cultural association remains strong today. Yes, absolutely. That's why people feel actually pretty uh, emotional about their, or connected, when they, when they had one. They called it Trabi. You know, people felt pretty connected to it. And they, you know, the whole, the whole idea of the coming down of the wall and all of that. I mean, it just, there's a lot of, a lot of history surrounds this car. But about three million were sold, and I think it went until 91. I think once the wall came down, I think, there were other options that probably made more sense that had a fuel gauge, right? And seatbelts and other amenities, shall we say. 
I think the Trabant was one of my favourite items in the museum because it adds a little bit more nuance to the often black and white topic of failure. In this case, it just goes to show that your product can be a failure in terms of what it's trying to do. I mean, as a car, this was widely considered to be of terrible quality, but they sold 3.7 million of them. Here's West again. It's an abnormality because it was actually a huge success, but it was only a success because in East Germany at the time, you couldn't buy any other cars. It was a very, it was a crappy car, but because there was no competition, you had to buy it. So we love the Trabant putting it in the Museum of Failure and calling it a defiance of failure. My other favorite exhibit was from the more recent past, the Apple Newton. This was a device that I'd heard a lot about, but I don't think I'd actually seen one before. This was back in 1993, in the days of the Personal Digital Assistants, or PDAs. Apple actually made up that term, but you can picture other examples, products like the Palm Pilot. The Apple Newton was a large handheld device, almost like an early version of the iPad, and it was the first device to have handwriting recognition. What is Newton? Newton is digital. Newton is personal. Newton is magic. Like many of the products in the museum, there was a lot of hype and big hopes at the launch, but that quickly faded. Here's West again. There's multiple reasons that Newton failed, but the main reason was it was launched prematurely. So the engineers and technical developers were very clear that the sort of handwriting recognition software didn't work. But leadership decided to launch it anyway and then fix it right before launch or early on and update it. That didn't work, and that was the main cause for Apple Newton becoming this iconic failure. The Newton was expensive and didn't work or sell great, and Steve Jobs pulled the plug on it in 1997. Here's what he had to say about it at that time. I tried a Newton, I bought one, I thought it was uh, bought one of the early ones, that was a piece of junk, I threw it away. To me, what I want is this little thing I carry around with me, so if somebody would just make a little thing where you're connected to the net at all times, and you got a little keyboard like an e-mate with a modem in it, God, I'd love to buy one. So it sounds like he's describing an iPhone. Exactly, Charles. And though the iPhone didn't wind up with the keyboard Jobs is describing, you can see that the shortcomings of the Newton were addressed in later technology. It's because of that that West points out that labeling the product as a failure isn't quite so straightforward. Steve Jobs himself was quite clear about by discontinuing and he said killing the Apple Newton, they freed up resources to start working on what then became the iPod and iPad. And you can see, you can see the sort of DNA of Apple in the message pad, as it was officially called, the Apple Newton, in the idea of removing the, the keyboard from your device. They were already exploring how to get rid of the keyboard. And then when the iPhone and iPad came out, the keyboard's gone. I think it's fair to say that the Apple Newton is a, was a necessary iteration or failure that then led to the massively successful and disruptive iPad and iPhone. The aim of the museum also is to show that the Newtons of the world are necessary to push progress and to push innovation forward. I think for organizations, the number one take-home message is to understand that there's a difference between good failure and bad failure and that not all failures be treated alike. So bad failure in terms of sloppiness or incompetence or failure that could have been prevented in any way. And that should never be accepted. 
that's still something that should be penalized by the organization. But failure that's done in the name of progress when a team is pushing the envelope forward, that is good failure. And that can't be treated in the same way as bad failure. Many companies say, oh, we want to be innovative, but we don't ever want to fail. And that's, it's naive and it's stupid. You, that's impossible. The bigger the company, the bigger the game, the bigger the risks have to be as well. Now there's one more section to the museum just at the end. At the museum, we have a failure confessional at the end. So when you've seen all the, the big boys, big brands and companies fail, then there's a, an entire wall where you can write and we call it the failure confessional. You confess your failure and you write it up on a post-it note and, and, and put it up there for everyone to see. So this is the share your failure wall where people write down their, their failures on post-it notes. Let's have a look up here. My bar exam. Laughing when it's not funny. Burnt dinner last night. I can relate to that. Selling Thomas the train set at a garage sale. Collectibles now selling 10 times their original price. Wow. Well, this is sad. This is serious. Not quitting after getting abused. This is some really heavy stuff here. Adopting turtles that don't, quote unquote, grow bigger. A lot of people take it, I mean, it's surprisingly personal. People are, get, get quite personal when they sort of think about what failure they would like to confess. There's a sense of liberation when you see that the these multinationals with all their resources and all their intelligent people uh, and experience, they still fail when they try something new, that that people feel liberated. Like, okay, if they can fail and still be successful, then, then so can I as an individual. And West made his own contribution to the war. When I had the idea, I got so excited because I, I knew it was a good idea. And I bought the domain museumoffailure.com. And I was so excited that 2016, that this was still available. And I felt like I just, you know, won the lottery until I, I checked the email, the confirmation email that I bought the domain. And it said, congratulations, you own museumoffailure.com. So I'd misspelled the word museum. I must be the only museum creator in the world that can't spell the word museum. Thanks for listening to The Best New Ideas in Money. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you heard, please leave us a rating or review. And if you have ideas for future episodes, drop us a line at bestnewideasinmoney at marketwatch.com. Thanks to Johanna Gottman and Samuel West. To learn more about new ideas in money, head to marketwatch.com. I'm Charles Passy. And I'm James Rogers. The Best New Ideas in Money is a podcast from MarketWatch. The producers are Michael McDowell, Meta Lutzhoft, and Katie Ferguson, who also mixed this episode. Melissa Haggerty is the executive producer. Steve Kutz was our newsroom editor on this episode. The Best New Ideas and Money theme was composed by Sam Retzer. Stephanie Kelton is an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University and not part of the MarketWatch newsroom. We'll be back next week with another new idea.